I'm really happy to be with you this morning, just to share a little bit <clears throat> about my life. David's going to be talking about the call. <clears throat> so I thought I would share my call with you. I grew up in Vietnam, where my parents were international uh, workers, which is the current term for missionary. And all of the significant adults in my life were missionaries. They were my teachers. They were my parents. They were just the ones that influenced me. But I had no idea what God wanted me to do with my life. I was a planner, and, and when I was in 11th grade, I was kind of worried, like, what am I going to do? You know, some of the other kids in my class knew. And God spoke to me, and what I want you to hear, from me anyway, is that God speaks. He lets you know. And it was in a very, in a meeting at, at, at the boarding school that I was attending in Vietnam. And in the middle of all of that, it wasn't even a spiritual meeting, just a meeting. And God just impressed on me that he wanted me to be a missionary nurse. Now, I'd never even thought about it. I wasn't even planning to be a missionary. I, was, I admired the ones around me, but I didn't know. And my mother was visiting the school that day. And I remember running to her afterwards. I said, I know. I was just so excited that I finally knew I could start planning and, and preparing. And what she said to me was significant. She said, Becky, she didn't just say, oh, that's nice, you know, like I'm going to change my mind maybe. But she said, Becky, you heard from God. I'll never forget that. And as I finished high school, went on to college, started preparing, there were times when I was dating the wrong guys. They weren't going that way. And all she had to say to me was, what was it that God wanted you to do? And kind of like, get back on track. So God speaks. Well, it's great for us to be back at Trinity. We were here, I think, seven years ago or something like that. And 20 years ago this year, we flew back from Gabon, Africa, for our son Joshua's wedding to Esther. And they were married right there in that corner. So uh, uh, we have memories from your church. Um, anyway, it's great to be here. I want to uh, tell you also that I have a couple of books in the back there if you're interested. The Hand of My Scalpel is kind of a sequel to um, On Call, and uh, I'd be happy to autograph it. They're $10. If you don't have the money, just take one, and um, we get about a dollar a book or something like that um, after expenses. This other book here is uh, uh, Christian Mercy. It's the next to the last book I've written, and uh, it really is a, uh, about... It, how as how the difference between uh, Christian mercy and humanitarian mercy and how we blend the gospel and bring the gospel in and what is the importance of the gospel in Christian mercy. And so I'm involved right now in uh, helping homeless and building uh, some kind of housing for, for uh, the homeless in Reading and just got started in that project, but those principles are exactly the same. So I would invite you to... Uh, take one of these other books if you want, and uh, if you would like me to autograph it, I'd be happy to do that. Um, also, Becky has a, a very nice little brochure here called uh, Make a Lasting Impact. It's for nurses, and, uh, and this is for the hospital in Egypt where we worked for five years, and she started a nursing school and uh, discipled young Christian nurses. Well, I'm, I'm just uh, really excited. 
about this week that's uh, starting today for, for you and for your church, and I'm just praying that God will speak to you through, through us, and uh, you will hear from him. Uh, we, we don't really um, believe that all the wonderful things that have happened in our ministries are because we're such wonderful missionaries or great people or extraordinary. God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things, and we are as astonished or probably even more astonished than people who read these or hear these stories. You know, studies have shown that most people think that their hearing is pretty good. Mr. Smith suspected the, that his wife was hard of hearing, so he decides to test this. As his wife is chopping vegetables, he uh, stands 10 feet behind her and says, honey, what's for dinner? And she just keeps chopping away. And so he moved a little closer and said, honey, what's for dinner? And she kept chopping away. And finally, he came really close and said, honey, what's for dinner? And she turned around and said, dear, I said chicken and salad three times. <laughs> it's a funny story, but what if we are deaf? What if we are deaf and God is speaking? I've been in that situation. You know, the Great Commission is unfinished. Scripture reveals when it will be completed. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. My best calculation is that Jesus made this statement 1,987 years ago. So, why hasn't the church finished the assignment? Is it because we don't want Jesus to come? Of course not. Is it because we don't think he wasn't serious when he said it? Maybe. No previous generation of Christians has had as many resources to preach the gospel to the whole world than the Church of Jesus Christ in this century. The early disciples either walked, rode horses, rode donkeys, rode in ox carts, or crossed the oceans in sailboats. Letters had to be hand-delivered by trusted friends. Books, including scriptures, were tediously copied by hand. There were no loudspeakers, amplifier systems, radios, televisions, telegrams, computers, phones, or the internet. The average lifespan was 50 years or less. Medical care was primitive, misguided, and often brutal. And people who did not walk, work hard or did not have families to take care of them starved, even in our country. What is our excuse? Thankfully, in America, the majority of Christ followers have not stopped reading their Bibles, have not stopped praying, worshiping on Sundays, or caring for people in their communities who need help. But most have stopped hearing the words of the Great Commission. Jesus stated this in Matthew 28:18. Some of us can quote it by memory depends on the translation. I have to read it because I like a, the New Living Translation uh, when I'm preaching. I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the and the Holy Spirit. Teach these disciples to obey all the commands I have given you, and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Last night, we had a wonderful time uh, in, uh, in, this in the house meeting where we were at and there was a bonfire outside and we sat around and there were children there that were listening and it was just a great audience for us to tell our wild stories. And, um, but I asked uh, some of the children, do you know what the Great Commission is? 
Maybe they had memorized the verse, but they didn't know what it was. So we need to talk about that. The Alliance website says, God raised up the Alliance to be one of his end-time families to carry the gospel to the least-reached places of the world through spirit-filled, Bible-preaching, people-loving churches. And we won't stop until the job is done. From what I've seen over the years, Trinity Alliance is that kind of church. Otherwise, you wouldn't be devoting this week to missions. But when, when was the last time Trinity Alliance Church raised up one of its own to take the gospel to a people group still waiting to hear the good news? Now, I don't know the answer to that, but I hope you do. Most of you know that Becky and I are MKs, our missionary kids. And both of us have missionary parents who served with the Alliance and were martyred in Vietnam in the 60s. Beginning in 1975, we served in Gabon, Africa for about 34 years, and more recently, another five years in Egypt at a 100-year-old Christian hospital where we cared for the sick, trained medical professionals, discipled them, and proclaimed the gospel. You can read some of the stories of those books and uh, of those years in the two books that I have available there in the lobby. Um, but the point I want to make is not to brag, but, but that for most of our lives, we have done our best to move the needle towards finishing the church's universal unfinished task. As have many of you, through prayer, giving short giving, short-term trips, or serving perhaps long-term. Yet billions of people still wait today to hear the gospel from the lips of God's people. The problem is that the world is expanding. The numbers of people are growing. If only they would just stay at 7 billion, we could perhaps catch up, but that is the challenge. And um, so people are still waiting Large numbers of people are still waiting to hear from the lips of Christians the gospel. Well, um, we weren't more spiritual or more gifted than any of you are, I can promise you. But we were blessed to grow up in families that were passionate about the Great Commission. God used our parents to open our ears to God's call to world missions. Now, God doesn't call everyone to world missions. But if our ears hadn't been open, he could have been talking, and we would not have heard it. White to harvest. One day when Jesus and his disciples were walking through Samaria, he stopped to talk to a Samaritan woman. You know the story well. His disciples were surprised, but uh, they were even more surprised when he said to them, my nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing his work. Well, it's like a... Did somebody give them some bread or something? I just went right over their heads. Jesus finished his work here on earth, though, even though it would take him to the cross. How are we doing? Can we say that our nourishment comes from finishing God's work for us here on earth? When I hear the word nourishment, I, I confess, I think of waffles for breakfast slathered with butter, that's melting, strawberries oozing, maple syrup. But Jesus was talking about spiritual, spiritual nourishment. And I used to think uh, that was reading the Bible, praying and listening to Christian music. But Jesus was talking about his life work, about completing a task that he and the Father and God the Holy Spirit had agreed to do to save the world. 
How do we nourish ourselves on finishing God's work? If we ate food one day a month, would, would we be well nourished? No, don't think so. Uh, once a week? Nope. Once a day? Still no. The task Jesus came to do was on his mind all the time. Even when he was hungry, thirsty, after walking for who knows how many hours to that Samaritan village. And he talked to a Samaritan woman about living water while his disciples went off and looked for bread. Let me take you back in time to 100 years ago. My grandparents heard God's call to take the gospel to Hanoi, Vietnam in 1918. There's a funny story about them. Actually, my grandfather went first with two other men and because it was a French colony and there were lots of um, immoral French officers around, uh, every, every single man had a Vietnamese, um, what would you call it, uh, mistress. And so they, people started coming up and offering their daughters to them as mistresses. And so it just got to be such a problem. Here they are trying to preach and everybody's thinking they're looking for a mistress. And so they sent word back to the Alliance headquarters that they needed wives. So in the next graduating class from the, uh, from the uh, Nyack Bible School there for missionaries, um, they, they, there were, they asked if there were any ladies who would like to go, and three volunteered. And they went out, and on, as they were on the ship, uh, the, the, uh, these uh, missionary men back there, they decided who was going to marry whom. <laughs> and when they got there, the others agreed, and, and uh, they got married. And you know what? Those marriages lasted until they died. And there's wonderful stories. My grandparents uh, were two of those. They had eight children. They had to save every penny to keep food on the table and make ends meet. Uh, they served in Vietnam with the Alliance for 40 years, planted hundreds of churches, died in their 70s, far from most of their children and nearly all of their grandchildren. Why was that? It was because five of their eight children, and I don't know how many of their grandchildren, uh, but five of their eight children, one of them being my mother, became career missionaries and raised their families in Cambodia, the Philippines, Indonesia, and Vietnam. The family's combined service overseas, including their spouses, totaled more than 420 years. And the churches they and their colleagues founded numbered today not in the thousands, not in the hundreds of thousands, but in the millions. Why did so many from the Stebbins-Thompson family tree give their lives to do this? They did it because they were in an environment where they saw God's call to proclaim the gospel. Their parents made it their life work and they saw how Jesus saved and transformed individuals and families and entire communities. So when God called them to be missionaries, their ears were open to hear him. I'm not saying that God, again, I'm not saying that God calls all of us to be missionaries and all children to be become missionaries in foreign lands, but I think he calls more of us than we think. He certainly calls all of us to reach out to people here in our homes. The story of Samuel is found in the first 16 chapters of the book of First Samuels. And Samuel, it's one of my favorite stories. Uh, chapter 3 climaxes at the end to his, his rise to lead leadership with this statement. As Samuel grew up, 
The Lord was with him, and everything Samuel said proved to be reliable. And all Israel, from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south, knew that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh and gave messages to Samuel there at the tabernacle. And Samuel's words went out to all the people of Israel. So how did Samuel come to this position? How did he come to be the revered leader in Israel whose words went out to all the people in Israel? Maybe you're wondering if I've forgotten that this is Mission Sunday and not uh, su just Super Bowl Sunday, but I haven't forgotten. Uh, and then I'm supposed to be preaching about the Great Commission. This is about it. I have, I, my question is important. How did Samuel come to be the revered leader, leader of Israel so that his words went out to all the people in the land? Well, we could say that uh, it was because his godfather, Eli, the high priest of Israel, taught him the law of Moses as he grew up, which I'm sure he did. But that is not the reason that Samuel's words went to all the people. Both of Eli's sons grew up to be wicked priests. Why did Samuel turn out differently? We could say that it was because God spoke to him when he was a young boy. We know that story. Three times the angel of the Lord said, Samuel, and he said, got up and went to Eli and woke him up and said, well, yes, what do you want? And Eli said, I didn't call you. And the third time Eli said, it's the Lord. Go back and say to him this, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And so the next time when God spoke, Samuel said, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Why did God insist on him saying that? Samuel obeyed, and as we all know, the Lord told him that because Eli had not disciplined his disobedient sons, God was going to do a shocking thing in Israel. And soon after that, both of Eli's sons died in battle, and the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines. When Eli heard the news, he fell backwards in his chair, broke his neck, and died. But I don't think that was the reason that Samuel was the only one at Shiloh who remained obedient to God and could hear his voice. Samuel became the spiritual leader of Israel in large part because of his mother and his father's faith, particularly his mother. You know the story already. I'll review it quickly as, I told in Sam, as is told in Samuel chapters 1 and 2. There was a woman named Hannah who was married to a good man named Elkanah, and he had two wives because probably Hannah was, he probably took the second wife because Hannah was infertile. She had no children. And as usually is the case in polygamous, polygamous marriages, you don't see that so much, but we do in Africa, uh, their home was an unhappy one. Elkanah um, would take them once a year, the whole family, to Shiloh for the Passover celebration. And uh, during that time, Penina, who had children, would taunt Hannah and make fun of her because she, God had not given her children. This happened Every year that they went to the tabernacle to celebrate Passover and finally one year Hannah couldn't bear it any longer and she left the meal and she went to the, the entrance of the tabernacle to pour out her heart to God and while she was there she made this vow she said oh Lord of heaven's armies if you will look upon my sorrow and answer my prayer and give me a son then I will give him back to you he will be yours for his entire lifetime Eli, the high priest, thought she was drunk and rebuked her, but after she explained that she was praying, he said, go in peace, may the Lord grant your request. And guess what? She got pregnant, and she had a child. 
She gave birth to a son, and she named him Samuel, which means God heard. Can you imagine the love and the joy that this child brought to her? But when the child was weaned, maybe age three or four, finished breastfeeding, Hannah took him to the tabernacle in Shiloh and said to Eli, here, he's yours. And her father and her husband consented. I am giving him to the Lord and he will belong to the Lord his whole life. Think about the pain she experienced. You know, imagine giving one of your own children away to a pastor to be raised in the church and be his assistant at the age of three or four. But you know what she did? Chapter 2 records her prayer of praise, a prayer that starts with the words, My heart rejoices in the Lord. The Lord has made me strong. You know, my grandparents did not mourn because their children were in the countries of Vietnam and Philippines and Cambodia and, uh, and all their grandchildren, too. They didn't mourn. They praised God. Their hearts were full of joy. That's something that God can do. Brothers and sisters, the reason that Samuel became a great man of God in Israel was not just because of his own obedience, but also because of his mother and father's sacrifice of faith, obedience, and worship. There was sacrifice in faith because they believed that God had heard Hannah's prayer. There was sacrifice in obedience because they kept their promise to God. Theirs was, there was a sacrifice of worship because after giving God what was most precious to them, they worshiped him. World missions does not happen unless God's people hear his call to send out missionaries. Before God gave Samuel the message he had for Eli, he, had, he waited for Samuel to say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And this is what we need to be saying to God, and we need to teach our children to say to God. It is so important for missions. The majority of missionaries on our fields today heard their call to missions as children, particularly as um, in, the, in their teens. Why was that important? Well, it happened because of godly parents, faithful Sunday school teachers, and Bible teaching pastors who first taught them to listen to the words of God. They saw it in their mentors. They saw it in, they saw it in their parents. They saw it in Christian teachers. They saw it perhaps in the elders of the church and their Sunday school teachers. And when eventually the Holy Spirit caused them to go to the nations waiting in darkness, their ears and their hearts were open and ready. They had learned to listen to God's voice. And the people who raised them taught them well. But not just the children hear it. The parent must hear it. Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is placed, planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives, those who love their life in this world will lose it. Those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. Anyone who wants to be my disciple must follow me because my servants must be where I am. And the Father will honor anyone who serves me. An article on a website that I found called Farm Progress describes how a seed dies. 
a single corn seed that weighs one one hundredth of an ounce, has the ability to be placed in dirt, germinate, grow to a plant seven to ten feet tall, and multiply the grain yield five hundred fold. No man-made machine possesses an equivalent ability to perform a comparable feat. Although seed seems to be dead, it is actually alive and in a state of quiescence. It remains at rest until desirable conditions trigger germination. Jesus is not asking us to be martyrs. He's asking us to be willing to suffer pain to serve him. Listen to what Oswald Chambers says about this. I don't know if any of, many of you know his book, uh, My Highest for, My Utmost for His Highest, or maybe I, I keep getting it backwards. But anyway, it's a great book. There's been a, it's been edited to modern English. It is just a wonderful, wonderful uh, devotional book. Anyway, uh, here's what he says. The first thing God does with us is to get us based on rugged reality until we do not care what becomes of us individually as long as he gets his way for the purpose of his redemption. Why shouldn't we go through heartbreaks? Through those doorways, God is opening up ways of fellowship with his son. Most of us fall and collapse at the first grip of pain. We sit down on the threshold of God's purpose and die away of self-pity. But God comes with the pierced hand of his son and says, enter into fellowship with me and shine. If through a broken heart, God can bring his purposes to pass in the world, then thank him for breaking your heart. That's my story. That's Becky's story. God had to break our hearts first. These are principles which we must model for our children and our grandchildren and others who are watching us. By following our example, our children and those we disciple can learn to hear the Holy Spirit say, this is the way I want you to go. Amy Carmichael was a remarkable Christian woman from Wales who in the late 1800s heard God calling her to missionary service in Asia. Elizabeth Elliot wrote, if it were possible to poll all missionaries who have worked in all the world in all Christian history, it would be seen that missionary work most of the time offers little that could be called glamour. What it does offer, as Amy Carmichael wrote to prospective candidates in later years, is a chance to die. So here is this woman, incredibly beautiful, incredibly intelligent, incredibly gifted, and the ministry God gave her for the rest of her life in India was rescuing hundreds and hundreds of children from forced temple prostitution, becoming their mother, washing their diapers, bathing them, and raising them and educating them until they were adults, and be, until they were mature in the Christian faith. All of those, almost all of those young children, many of them died from diseases. They didn't have vaccines back then or other medications, but they died knowing the Lord, and many of them became Christian leaders in India. To all of you here today, let me encourage you to reflect on what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10 about following him. And you know these verses. If you love your father or mother more than you love me, you are not worthy of being mine. Or if you love your son or daughter more than me, you are not worthy of being mine. If you refuse to take up your cross and follow me, you are not worthy of being mine. 
If you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. I can't tell you that when I look back, on, Becky and I look back on what God has done through us, we, we are just astounded. We never dreamed that God was going to do that. There were days that just, I can't believe some of the things I did. Um, we had to do. I mean, our hands, we had mud up to our elbows doing things. We were fighting army ants in our house and, and you know, pushing them, getting them, getting our children out of their beds as army ants were biting them. I just crazy things that you do. And yet God used those moments to change the lives of thousands of people. These are strong words that Jesus said, but they are words our children need to hear and understand. Unless they believe them, they will close their ears to God's call because the sacrifices required seem unreasonable. When Jesus called his disciples, he knew already that he was going to lead them to do three unthinkable things. First, give up their livelihoods as either fishermen, tax collectors, or whatever it was they liked to do for a living. Throw away your dreams, he said. Let them, third, second, he let them, uh, he um, asked them to let him re-educate them, transform them, break their hearts, and direct their lives until they died. Simple request. What did he say? Come and follow me, that's it. And finally, he asked them to love him for it. Young man, young woman, if God offers you the same deal, will you take it? The 12 disciples of Jesus, including Matthias, followed him to the end of the then known world and in the process turned the world upside down. Let me end with this story. And we'll have more stories to tell you this week. In 1965, my parents made the decision to move to Vietnam to bring the gospel to an unreached people group called the Penong or the Benong. They were in their mid-40s at the time, and for the previous 10 years, um, they had been uh, preaching to the tribe in eastern Cambodia, un totally unreached tribe. In 1965, though, the government of Cambodia forced all Americans to leave because uh, Nixon bombed the, the um, North Vietnamese army in eastern Cambodia without the king's permission. And uh, so all Americans had to leave, all the missionaries had to leave, and not one single Benong in Cambodia had believed after 10 years. I was 17 and headed for pre-med uh, college in Pennsylvania. I was only dimly aware of the intense sorrow that they felt for the Benong. They were praying about possibly moving to Vietnam where several thousand Benong lived near the Cambodian border. Many of our friends and supporters urged them not to go. The communists seemed to be winning the war at that time, and if they took over both Vietnam and Cambodia, it could be decades before the Benong turned to Christ. In the end, the Lord directed them to go. A few weeks before they were to leave, two of their closest friends came to our house, and my mother was doing the final packing of a number of barrels in the basement. They tried their best to dissuade my parents from going, even pointing out that if they were killed in the war, all five of their children would be orphaned. Our youngest, my youngest brother was about six at the time. At one point, their friends became so frustrated with him that they started pulling things out of the barrels that my mother had packed and throwing them on the floor. And at that point, my mother said to them, 
God has told us to go now to preach to the Benon before it's too late. If we die, we die. But we must obey. A few weeks later, they left for Vietnam and my three younger siblings, with my three younger siblings. Two years later, when uh, the, the younger, the children were at the Dalat Mission School, communist forces attacked and overran the city of Bamitut where they were living. There were, they were among six Alliance missionaries who were killed by communist machine gun fire and hand grenades as they tried to surrender under a white flag. When days later, U.S. and South Vietnamese forces fought back and reclaimed the city, they found the bodies of the slain missionaries. Perhaps you're thinking like I was, but wait, what about the Benong people? Who is going to win them to Christ? Doesn't God care about them? That was my question, but God wasn't finished. Six years later, the war between North and South Vietnam was still raging. North Vietnamese army units took over all of Eastern Cambodia, preparing to make one final push. They drove tens of thousands of tribal people out of their lands and into Vietnam, burning their fields and villages. Among them were an estimated 30,000 Bunong. The Vietnamese government wasn't prepared for and was caught by surprise. They put them in abandoned American bases, but uh, though they had shelter, they were starving and sick. Vietnamese Christians and missionaries responded with clothing, food, medicines, love, and something else, the gospel. When the Benong heard the gospel, many of them remembered my parents. And they stood up and they said, wait, wait, we, we've heard this story from these missionaries. You know, a big tall guy named Thompson and, and his wife, a little shorter. And they, and they uh, um, where are they? And the, uh, the missionaries and the pastors, they said to him, well, your missionaries came here to Ban Mituit, up in the highlands over that mountain, but the communists killed them. They came here to tell your people the story. And when the Benong heard that, something broke in their hearts. And they started to turn to Christ, first a few hundred and then the th by the thousands. By the end of two years, an estimated 20,000 Benong had turned to faith in Jesus. In 2010, Becky and I went back to Cambodia and we visited that area. Today, there's an estimated 37,000 Benong living in Cambodia. Um, nearly all of them call themselves Christians. We went into one of these small villages. The people invited us into their small church made of bamboo and palm branches. As we entered, we were I was just so surprised because on the wall was this this, this kind of uh, cloth, beautiful cloth uh, banner, and on it was the Alliance symbol. I had, I'm sure they had no idea what those symbols meant. And so I said to them, um, why, why do you have that up on your wall? And they said, because those are the people who loved us and brought us to Jesus. There used to be <clears throat> Excuse me. There used to be a marble plaque over the tomb where my parents are buried in uh, Bamituit. Communist officials removed it, but the words chiseled into it 
in both Vietnamese and English are forever. It says, I tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Those who love their life in this world will lose it. Those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. Anyone who wants to be my disciple must follow me because my servants must be where I am and the Father will honor anyone who serves me. I want to ask you an easy question. How many of you, I, I, I need you to raise your hand for this or not, how many of you agree that it's our job to finish the Great Commission? Great, bravo. I'm happy to see that and I think it's true in most of our churches. Today is the day to hear God's voice, to know God's voice and to distinguish it from the call of the world. That is the first step on this journey of hearing and obeying the Great Commission. I've talked a lot today about the gospel. Well, here it is. If today you are here and you are listening to this message and you don't belong to Jesus yet, you can be forgiven of every sin you have ever committed and belong to him. That's the gospel. It's not complicated, but it does require you to act, to make a decision, and to invite Jesus into your life. Could I just ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes? And if you're watching this uh, on uh, video, again, close your eyes and bow your heads. Um, I want to just offer, invite you to pray this simple prayer with me if you're not yet a follower of Jesus. It's as simple as ABC. A stands for admit. I admit I am a sinner in need of a savior. I admit that I can't make myself good enough to please God. B stands for believe. I believe that God sent Jesus into our world to save me from my sin. He lived the perfect and sinless life I should have lived and died in my place on a cross where he paid the penalty of sin. And then he was resurrected and went to heaven. C stands for choose. And today I choose to put my trust in Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for hearing my prayer and for accepting me into your family. Keep your heads bowed for another moment. If you prayed that prayer right now, would you wave at me something to show me that uh, you made that decision? Thank you. Praise God. This is the message. This is the message, the simple message that Jesus has commanded us to take to every tribe and nation of the world. Amen. kind of all choked up. <laughs> but I can do this. I can, can we move this stand? I can't see Becky. Um, <clears throat> let's stand together. I want to I close with a song that um, 
I think kind of speaks to this, that we would follow the Lord and his lead, that we would trust in him in all that we do. And wherever he will lead, we will follow. You live among the least of these, the weary and the weak, and it would be a tragedy for me to turn away all my needs you have supplied when I was dead. Heavenly Father, we thank you um, again just for your uh, fact that you are a God who is active and involved in our life. 
thank you that you do speak. Lord, thank you for this reminder this morning of that reality and that truth. And maybe, maybe that's the first time we've heard that. Maybe it's, it's a new message for us in a new way, maybe. That it's beyond just... You're, you're not a God who just lived and, and died 2,000 years ago then stop speaking. You are a God is still active and involved in speaking to your people, calling us to follow you. So Lord, I just pray that, uh, again, just continue to drive home this truth into our hearts uh, today and the rest of this week. Lord, for those of us who have clearly heard you speak even this morning, Lord, allow us um, the ability to understand clearly what that word is and to then to follow you, to have that courage. Give us the courage to follow whatever you've asked us to do, wherever you're calling us, whatever you're saying. In Hebrews chapter 12, this is again just a reminder, chapter 4 is a reminder of your word and your speaking. Chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Lord, speak to our hearts. Clearly communicate your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless. Have a great day. Thank you, Thompsons, for sharing. Looking forward to uh, hearing you the rest of this week.